If you have your Bibles, come to James or open or turn them on. How many of you guys are familiar with the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty? Yeah, I think I have a picture here. Yeah, a couple more. Humpty Dumpty, you know, sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And so, you know, like, I, kind of, I spent a little time on Google, like, what is the point of this nursery rhyme? Um, and Google gave multiple answers. But generally they said, hey, the egg is a symbol of life. And it illustrates the, the point that humanity is what? Broken. In the same token, we know that humanity started out well in the garden and disobeyed God. And there's <clears throat> one rule at that time, one command, and ate of the fruit. Didn't describe what kind of fruit. We don't know if it's apple, pear, or whatever. Some fruit. Ate. And that plunged humanity into sin and brokenness and lostness. And so, in, this, in the same <clears throat> or similar perspective, as we think of what happened to this egg and we think about what happened to humanity, even today, um, we struggle with brokenness. We struggle with fallenness. But the interesting thing is today we take a different take to this nursery rhyme, and we have a different way of dealing with fallenness and brokenness. And a lot of times, it'll come in different angles today. When I say today, like in the last five years or ten years, our mentality has changed. Instead of owning up to our brokenness and fallenness, we might say, hey, who pushed Humpty Dumpty? Or someone might say, like, you know, why was Humpty Dumpty sitting there in the first place? And oftentimes, um, <clears throat> we want to push responsibility to other people and not accept responsibility. And we might say other questions. Somebody pushed me, or somebody made me do it. And if nobody's around, the mindset of our culture would be simply still to blame others. And oftentimes, we might say, hey, the devil made me do it. Or Maybe today, the culture made me do it, um, whatever that might have been. Um, many times when we have these shootings in schools or churches, and they interview <clears throat> the background of these people, and they'll say, their background, all their hardships made me shoot them. No. <clears throat> when you sin, um, it has an origin. It has a source. And I want to touch that and hit that today. It's not someone outside of you. It's not, some people might even go as far as to blame God as the one who tempted me to sin. And that's actually what's happening here in the book of James. There, if you remember the audience, um, <clears throat> James is speaking to Jewish believers and going through a hard, hard time. And they are at a point where they are blaming God for all their problems. And Actually, I can think about people I know, um, even of recent. They're going through stuff, and they're just mad, and they're angry, and they're mad at God himself. And so, I just remember and kind of capture what the <coughs> believers, um, these Jewish believers in the diaspora are going through. They, they've been pushed out of Jerusalem. They've been pushed out of Palestine through persecution. They're in a foreign land. They're around, I'll say unfriendlies, or people they're just not used to being around, and they're experiencing temptation. Um, they're, they've lost their homes, they've lost their comforts. Um, I think the closest thing I can imagine that would be similar to us here in North, 
Carolina would be, you know, I come from California, and so they always think, okay, Gary, you guys have, you know, earthquakes in L.A. and San Francisco, but, you know, the last major one in California, in, in, in San Francisco, was in 1989 during the Bay Bridge World Series, and then <clears throat> Northridge had a big one, I think, in, in 1994. So they haven't had a big one for a while, but Californians believe, yes, it will happen again one day. We don't know when. Um, since moving here to North Carolina, we noticed that there's a hockey team called the Hurricanes. And ironically, there are hurricanes that come sometimes a lot every year. I remember one year there's like a big Cat 5 or Cat 4 right off the shore. And we're like, man, we're going to get devastated. We're going to be swimming in our backyard and needing a boat. I was almost going to go to, to Walmart to buy a little boat. So if we needed to jump in, we could just raft down to like, you know, Asheville or something like that. Or go rest down to Micah's house in, in Charlotte, where it's a little safer, more inland. But anyways, um, <clears throat> just imagine losing your home, not having food, not having your comfort. There's a lot of temptation that kicks in. You might be angry at, like, your spouse. Man, why'd you choose to live here in a flood zone? Or you might be like, man, I've been hungry for four days, and you see someone like a bag of food. There's a huge level of temptation, man. I'm going to steal that bag of food. Um, or you see that Walmart, and the, flood, the, the employees are all flooded. Uh, I want some food, so I'm just going to walk in and, you know, help myself to some food. The temptation is high um, in stressful situations. Um, the temptation is high when you are going through hardship. But there's, that's just on a big <laughs> level. On a micro level, we face temptation all the time, every day. And it, it bombards us in this broken world. Um, this fallen world, and this fall, <clears throat> and so we face it. Sometimes we could call it heat, but I'll just throw out some more temptations, heat that we might face. Every day we face the temptation to worship another God versus the one and true God. There's temptation to distort the truth by lying. Um, there's t- temptation to blame shift or to make excuses or to rationalize why you need to sin, why you need to cheat, why you need to steal. Um, there's temptation we face, there's war within us to, to lust and to covet, to desire what is not ours. There's this temptation to, to be discontent and desire the three Ps, um, <clears throat> to exalt yourself in, in position, power, and popularity. There's a temptation to indulge and fill in the blank. Too much food, too much social media, too much drink, too much whatever. Excess is a problem in this life where we are tempted. There's temptation to compromise yourself in terms of what's right and wrong, in terms of integrity, in terms of holiness and sexual morality. There's all kinds of temptation we face, and there's a temptation to blame God and say, God, you made me do this. It is your fault, God. What's going on in and amongst the believers that James is ministering to. But I want to bring it up today. What are we facing? Are we subconsciously blaming God for things? If you're bitter, even bitter, there's a bitterness in you, that's a, or unforgiveness, deep down you are upset with God. You can say it's your circumstances or whatever, but ultimately there's an issue with you and God. Um, and so we want to address this very specifically that we would have a clear view, a biblical view of what God says about the test of temptation for us today. And so as we look at chapter 1, verses 13 to 18, 
Um, we're going to look at three reasons why and how we can exercise faith in action as we are facing many temptations in this life. And so, um, really, we're asking this very first question as we look at these three reasons. Is God truly responsible for the temptations we face? And so James knows this and anticipates this and comes with the reasons really quickly. So the first reason is to understand God's character in James chapter 1, verse 13. James makes it crystal clear, and he says this, Let no one say when he or she is tempted, I am being tempted by God. All right? God um, does not tempt. Um, <clears throat> we see James go on, goes on and gives two reasons, and, <clears throat> and the two reasons are right here. For God cannot be tempted with evil, one, and two, he himself tempts no one. So let's just break this down really <clears throat> a little bit more, make it crystal clear. James says, let no one say, let not a person that he say he or she is tempted by God. God does not tempt. Um, don't be tempted to blame God or to represent or misrepresent God or claim that God is tempting you today or the men and women back in that day. Um, <clears throat> we see in verse 13, the word when, <clears throat> um, uh, when he tempted, <clears throat> I just want to focus on when a little bit. Um, when implies the idea that temptations will come, trials will come, and they'll come repeatedly and they'll come unexpectedly as we looked last week. But that's part of life in a broken world. Um, even Jesus said in this life there'll be many tribulations. So we will face temptation. But let's make it really clear. Um, when you look at by here, I am being tempted by God. This is a Greek preposition, by. And it's <coughs> the, the, the preposition here is apo, A-P-O. And the whole point here is saying, hey, no temptation is coming from God directly or indirectly. God is not responsible for the temptation that you are facing in any kind of way. This is not what God's character is about. God does not tempt people. Um, <clears throat> and so we see in the latter part of verse 13, James supports this with two facts. The first fact is that God, for, <coughs> for God, <coughs> excuse me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. God um, isn't tempted by evil. God doesn't have a sin nature. God is perfectly holy and separate from this world. He doesn't have a sin nature like we do, and so God um, <clears throat> cannot be tempted by evil. In the very end of verse 13, it says here that the nature of God is holy. And I, I just said that in the, same <clears throat> in the previous idea, but again, the same idea is reiterated. He himself, God himself, tempts no one. Uh, is it, impo it is impossible for God to tempt anyone. A holy God cannot be involved with tempting others. God's nature is that of holiness. And so <clears throat> I want you to just kind of lay this down. God is holy and his nature is to be holy. So um, <clears throat> maybe to get an idea of what holiness is, and we can kind of look at animals. Um, and if you consider a, a whale, is it in the nature of the whale to fly like a bird? We would say no. When you think of a snail, you know, the little slug-looking thing that has a shell. Is it in the nature of a snail to run fast? 
We would say no. Is it in the nature of an eagle to swim? Um, no, it's not in the nature. So when we think of God, understand, one of, I actually, this is my take doctrinally. There's many attributes of God. The fact that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-fill-in-the-blank. But I believe that his primary attribute is a God of holiness. There's a couple reasons why um, the angels and <clears throat> in Isaiah, also in Revelation, literally declare God to be what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Nor else in Scripture does it say, you know, powerful, powerful, powerful is the Lord God Almighty. Only this particular attribute, God's holiness, is declared in that way. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So when I understand God, He has a holy power. He has a holy knowledge that's unique only to what? God Himself. So God's nature is holy. The second reason we can't blame God for the temptations we're facing or <clears throat> is the reality that man's nature um, is sinful. Uh, man, <clears throat> the nature of man is sinful. We see this as a second reason. Really, James is pointing to the source of where temptation lies or resides or really the source originates. So James makes a contrast between God's holiness and man's sinfulness, and really the nature of man. Really, we're talking about the doctrine of man and his depravity. If you look at verse 14, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire that comes within us as human beings. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And so we're going to break this down. Verse 4, 14 and 15, we see three phases of temptation. It's basically enticement, endorsement, and enslavement. Enticement, endorsement, enslavement. Those who you like fishing will be able to relate much to this verse. So I'll just kind of put that out there for you to think about. So verse 14, the first part here, the first phase of temptation is enticement, okay? So temptation doesn't come from God. It really comes from us within. Um, <clears throat> James makes it really clear in verse 14, but when each one, each individual, each person is tempted, um, here we're looking at um, <clears throat> temptation happening in the present, in the present tense, when we experience temptation in our, in our daily one. Each one, we're talking about this is an individual experience when it's happening to you personally. And in verse 14, it says here, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The, Lord, <clears throat> the word lured means drag away or compelled by an inner desire, or let's get right to it, a sinful nature, a sinful desire. Um, <clears throat> the next word, when he is lured and enticed, the word enticed here comes from that fishing concept that I was talking about earlier. <clears throat> the word enticed is, has the idea of catching a fish. It means to capture, to catch with bait, to, to use bait in such a way to entice the prey. And so as we think about what is happening to us in a spiritual realm, we are being enticed to, to sin and appealed um, literally by our own 
sin nature. And so um, what, what is being enticed? Uh, the fact that we have a desire, a sin nature, um, a part of us that longs to lust um, or worship. Um, really, God made us to, to worship, and ultimately He made us to worship God. But if we don't worship God, we choose other things to worship. And one way we could flip worship around is to lust for other things, worship other things. And so this word desire, this word <coughs> lust, um, really speaks of <coughs> the human desire to long to, to be satisfied. And so we could sh- find our joy and satisfaction in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If not, more than likely, we'll find a whole bunch of other things in this world to worship instead. And so um, where is the enticement coming from? Where is the appeal? It's drawn particularly toward our desire. And so um, let's kind of pick, wrap this up in a, in a picture here. When I was a kid, I didn't enjoy fishing. Fishing wasn't fun to me. I wanted more instant gratification. I didn't like waiting for one fish to bite. Or, or you know, We'd try to find times where you know, there's a lot of fish. And so one time my dad and I went fishing at Folsom Lake that's outside of Sacramento. My dad said, man, they threw down a whole bunch of fish there. Let's go. So like, okay, we're fishing. And so we went up into the shoreline where there were some rocks and we saw a fish underneath a rock, and we're like, okay, we're going to use this temptation technique. We're going to drop some bait right in front of the fish so the fish could see it and be enticed. And yes, the fish was enticed, and they saw the little worm, and yeah, it drew the fish out, and guess what? Yeah, the fish paused for a moment, was tempted, thought about it, and went to the next phase. On the next phase of temptation is endorsement. On um, this desire, verse 15, the first part, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And so James uses some interesting language here. Some of the moms here are pregnant. Some just had a baby. Um, really, they're using this kind of birthing language as it relates to giving birth to sin. Um, when, <clears throat> when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin here. And so James is drawing language from the birthing or pregnancy world here. And so James is basically saying, hey, when you take enticement and you're dragged and you're lured um, to the point that you commit and you (laughs) commit the sin, you endorse um, the sin and go all the way, when the fish comes to the point that goes beyond just looking at it and thinking about it and being dragged, when it commits and goes after that worm and wants to bite on the worm and you know, eventually gets hooked, that's where endorsement happens. That's when sin is conceived. Um, and so when you take this desire and a willfulness and you put that in action, that's where sin is birthed. Sin is not conceived at the point of being lustful or looking or thinking about it. I mean, I guess if you think about it too long, you can mentally sin, and that's one way of sinning these days too. Jesus talks about that on the, the Sermon on the Mount. But that's when sin is conceived, um, when you go beyond a first glance, look or glance and you dwell on it or you commit to the action of sinning. And so that's when sin is given life. Sin typically starts small also and gets big. Think about it. Um, if you begin to cheat a little bit as a kid, 
guess what? In college, you're cheating bigger, and then when you are an adult, you learn how to cheat in bigger ways, unless you deal with those sins. When you are young, um, when it comes to sexual immorality, it usually starts young, and you desire more, and it gets bigger, and way out of control. We see people get arrested for it and go to jail um, because of sexual sin is all over the place and out of control in a lot of deviant ways. And so usually sins start small, and you want to deal with it earlier, younger, smaller, the better. I mean, I kind of look, think of my lawn. Um, there's weeds and stuff. You want to deal with it early and put serious lawn killer on there. What's lawn killer? It's the grace of repentance to kill sin in your life. Um, phase three is enslavement. We know as sin goes on and it grows, as tipping it toward this end, when it's fully grown, it brings forth what? Death. What kind of death? Well, there's three types of death the Bible talks about. Physical death, this is a separating soul from body. There's spiritual death, separating soul from God, and spiritual death, separating, separating both soul and body for God, from God forever. We know when Adam and Eve, who were set up to live eternally and spiritually forever in the garden, that didn't last forever because when sin entered in the world, Jesus or God himself in the garden wasn't lying. He said, you will surely die. They didn't die right away. But what? They eventually died. Sin um, <coughs> delivered its promise that you will eventually die. So uh, moving on, um, Edmund Ebert, very nice theologian, very precise exegetical theologian. The ladies, I think, were introduced to this book Last week, Edmund Ebert is a very strong theologian. He says this about sin. There's three generations in the story. A grandmother, the grandmother is lust, the mother is sin, and the daughter is death. There's three generations of sin in terms of how it plays out. There's a temptation, and you might be saying, hey, you know, this cannot be so, this cannot be true. You know, I think it is God who made me do this and made me cheat or steal or covet or whatever. And James anticipates this, and he says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my brothers. He says with compassion and love to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not be deceived. Understand this is the nature and how sin works. You are enticed. You endorse the sin, and, <clears throat> and you eventually become a slave and die. And so don't blame God. Don't blame someone else. Don't play the Humpty Dumpty game. Sin resides and starts in you. And so, maybe my quick thing, application before we go a little further, as you're thinking about your sin right now, maybe, probably, identify the big sins in your life, the ones that, like, seriously need some roundup. They're big and out of control, and they're causing problems in the lives of others around you because it's so out of control. Maybe it's your gossip. <laughs> maybe it's your complaining. Maybe it's fill in the blank. <clears throat> And so, or maybe it's further out and it's really causing problems. And so, um, don't be deceived. This is where sin resides. It begins with you. And also, change through the gospel begins with you. Um, <clears throat> if you didn't get it, if you're not clear, and you're still wondering, you know, is it God, is it me? Well, James comes back at it again in verse 17. He says in verse 17, the third reason, the nature <clears throat> of God's goodness. You might be questioning your view of God or what kind of God allows for hardship and trials in this world and in my life. Well, remember this, that God's nature and character is good. We see in verse 17, 
that every gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we're looking at God's nature in a couple, a few aspects here. First, I want you to know, as you consider God's goodness and His nature, know, number one, God's nature is only to give good gifts, because what? He's a good God. And so you see that in verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. The gifts that we experience here in this life are from our good God. We get good gifts from a good God. That's basically how it works. And what kind of gifts we see here? Um, it's very clear. Every good and perfect. The gifts that we receive from God are good and perfect. Um, number two, it is God's nature to give continuously or constantly give. We see in verse 17, a little bit further down, uh, a participle here says coming down. Literally, God is giving gifts constantly, nonstop. All the time he gives good gifts. You're like, what gifts are you talking about? The fact that he gives you air to breathe, that's a good gift that we benefit all the time. It's a good gift from the Lord. On the fact that he helps your heart to beat all the time, that's a good gift that you're enjoying right now. Um, number The third one is uh, consider the nature. God's, God's nature does not change. Right here we see um, that the Father of the heavenly light does not change like shifting shadows. If you ever look at a shadow on the ground that casts from light or sun and then something in front of it sets up a shadow, the shadow constantly shifts. God is not that way. God does not change. Um, he does not shift. Um, we might shift. Um, we could be fickle, but God is consistent in his character. Um, he is immutable. That means unchanging. And so he gives good gifts. That's his nature. And so, quick summary here. Three reasons why and to understand the nature of the testing of temptations. Remember that God's nature, uh, remember God's character, um, it's holy. Also his character, number, reason number three, is good. And the why we experience sin and where sin comes from is really our response to temptation. It's the nature, our sinful nature, man. And so, Verse 18, I'm, I, at first I like, how does verse 18 find, and we're dropping into conclusion, why does this all matter? So earlier we talked about briefly how sin gives life through lust and then committing to that sin, and there's a pregnancy, sin is conceived. So I believe here is a parallelism, a contrast. In one sense, James is pointing to the problem and the source of sin. Now it gives us this amazing hope that we sung and we'll receive once again here in verse 18. In verse 18, it says here, Of his own will he brought forth by the word of God that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. Like, what is this verse talking about? And it just breaks down beautifully in three perspectives of God's transforming work. Um, the first one is that we are freed from the penalty of sin. <clears throat> Where is that coming from? Of his own will, he brought us forth. Right there. It is by God's sovereign grace and sovereign will that he took rebellious, sinful, spiritually dead mankind and <clears throat> by his will, he made us alive 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, through, we call this regeneration. Um, that's a big time doctrine. Regeneration is to take a spiritually dead person and make them spiritually alive by God's sovereign grace. And this is to be what? Well, if you talk about Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3, it's to be born again, to made, be made spiritually alive. So there's this idea of conceiving sin. This is the idea of being spirit, made spiritually alive by God's sovereign grace through the power of regeneration. And so we see that it is God alone who brought forth, brought forth his idea. And he delivered us from sin. He delivered us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we have this divine power that's at work with us to what? Practice faith in action. We are not enslaved to our sin. We have been freed from our sin. How and by? What means? Well, through the word of truth. Um, the lies of this world will continue to confuse and even damn you, but the word of truth will set you free. The God's word in Psalm 19 literally says this very word has a unique property to convert the soul. To make you wise. But seriously, this word, if you have become a Christian, has penetrated your soul in such a way that what? Your soul has been converted. It's been changed. So you've been freed from the power, the penalty of sin by God's sovereign grace. And so the second thing that comes out of this passage is you're freed from the power of sin. God has given you his spirit to change you and to transform you. Um, the sad thing is I'm running out of time, so just understand that God has <clears throat> given you this power, and I want you to identify the big sins in your life and begin to isolate them and focus on them and ask God to give you resolve to understand, hey, I am a new creation. I have the new power that resides in me. I'm not to play with sin and get burned. In fact, uh, we have some practical um, advice from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is always faithful, and he will not tempt you beyond um, your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. If you think of all your temptation situations, there's always been a way of escape. Usually, it's simply don't sin, right? Every situation, no one's like forcing you to steal, all right? Even if you feel like, yeah, my friend shoved it in my hand and said run away with, you know, a car or a computer or whatever. No, you made that choice ultimately, all right? Um, <clears throat> there's always a way to escape. I, mean, I guess if you shoved it in your hands and stuck it in your shirt, he picked you up and ran away, but you could get off him, and once you get on your feet, you just run back and just bring that, you know, computer back or whatever. And we're talking about things like whatever. Always a way to escape, and he gives you grace to endure. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, this is a big one in this generation. It's been even in David's time when he sinned too, but flee from sexual immorality, all forms of sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality... <coughs> 
but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And so this is some practical resist sin, um, flee from sin, identify the, the, recognize the sins that you repeat over and over. Those are the ones that you want to go after. Um, Jesus, when he was tempted in Matthew, basically respond to sinful situations every time with what? The Word of God. You need to know the Word of God to combat the areas of sin in your life. Um, also, fight sin together. I, I have been hounding on this for good reason, but in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted and join that person in sin. We have a responsibility as community to fight sin together, to be in community, to know each other well enough to help each other in this journey to fight sin until you die or until Christ returns. Literally, we are in a fight daily to our very own death because sin will be in our life until we die or Jesus comes back. So we're in this constant battle to what? Fight sin. Sounds crazy, but we are. We're constantly in this battle to fight sin all the time. Okay, last part of this verse, verse 18, we're going to bring it around. We're freed from the presence of sin. This is glorification. So we looked at regeneration, sanctification, and glorification in this summary verse in verse 18. And so what is this talking about in verse 18? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what's this first fruits? In the Old Testament, the first fruits represented the best crops, the best harvest. And once you received and were blessed by God, a good harvest, you are to what? Offer back to God as a means of thanks and worship. And so when you did this in Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10, this is an act of trust and faith in God, to trust God to continue to bring this harvest. But on the same token, Christians are also an evidence of God's um, new creation, His first fruits. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, we, God's people, God's creation, God's saved folks, are, in one sense, a first fruits. And so, <clears throat> this reality, this truth, is a foretaste to future glory. And so, when we're facing temptation, one way to fight and have a perspective on temptation is to remember one day we will what? Experience future glory, have new bodies, and won't experience sin. In other words, every time we sin... It's basically a short, we're shooting for a shortcut to be satisfied. And ultimately, God wants to satisfy us, what? In a relationship with him in this life with Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we'll be perfectly satisfied in the life to come. And so, Brandon said, and God's word said, and we sang the importance of waiting. In Romans chapter 8, this is a picture of sanctification. We'll go 8 and we'll jump to verse 23 to 25. It says here, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as what? We eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is 
not hope, for who hopes for what for who hopes for what he sees. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we hope for it with what? Patience. So there are many things we wait for. Sometimes we wait well, and sometimes we don't wait so well. We wait to get a driver's license. We wait that summer vacation would come. We wait to graduate college. We wait for retirement. There's different ways we could wait in that process as we get there. But God calls us to humbly trust Him, to be content in all His good gifts and His provision, everything He's giving for life and godliness. In this case, to be satisfied in Him and the blessing of community that we enjoy here at Ruta Church. But to wait till one day we are glorified and it's all what? It's all worth it. It's all worth it. And we could go through this life and just keep sinning and cheating that kind of way, shortcutting. Or we could delight ourselves in the Lord 